Welcome once again to another riveting edition of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Your usual host, Ted Brinkert, is on assignment, so you're stuck with me, Brad Soboleski. Again, we're going to talk about an important topic in the pediatric ED, this time high-flow oxygen. Now, many of you may be familiar with high-flow, using it in either adults or children. This edition is going to focus specifically on bronchiolitis and its emerging use with this illness that a few of you are going to see just a couple of cases with this winter. Again, the usual disclaimer is that though I may mention some articles, I'm not going to dive too deeply into Man Whitney U or Chi Square. We'll just talk about the evidence as it applies to your practice. Now, high flow is an oxygen support therapy that was initially improved to deliver heated, humidified oxygen. It allows the delivery of oxygen at higher flow rates in liters per minute than traditional nasal cannula or face mask. And as you'll learn in a moment, it can actually facilitate the generation of positive pressure in the airway. There are multiple commercially available devices, one such is known as the Vapotherm, and in infants you can provide up to 8 liters per minute, and in children and adults you can dial up from 5 to 40 liters per minute, kind of like a hair dryer in the nose. It is delivered via nasal cannula, and though it's hard to assess the exact amount in vivo, you get the generation of positive airway pressure. So this is expiratory pressure that stents open the airways. I like to think of it like the scaffolding on a crumbling building. The chief advantage is in this modality in that it can deliver a high FiO2 with lower flow rates that's more comfortable for the patient. This comfort is augmented by the fact that the heated and humidified oxygen hydrates the mucosa. This thins the secretions, making them easier to suction, which babies appreciate. Though as I mentioned earlier, there are different machines and setups. Basically, you've got low-flow and high-flow circuits. Low-flow circuits are useful in the smallest babies, in whom the larger nasal cannula prongs will not fit. But for most patients that are a few months old to many years old, using the high-flow setup, which again gives between 5 and 40 liters per minute, is the best first option. I think a nice summary of the available literature on high flow, especially in bronchiolitis, is with Lee from the 2013 edition of Intensive Care Medicine. They noted that most studies regarding high flow nasal cannula in children look at either neonates or bronchiolitis. They mostly demonstrate that CPAP is generated, but they could not elucidate any predominant mechanism in reducing respiratory distress. So let's dive into some specifics in more detail. Spences, in 2009 from the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine, noted that in 46 infants and children on high-flow nasal cannula, they saw an improved respiratory comfort score, a respiratory clinical scale, and oxygen saturations. They placed nasal pharyngeal probes in these infants and noted that a CPAP of approximately 4 centimeters of water was generated. Ultimately, 5 out of their 46 patients required intubation. Aurora in Pediatric Emergency Care in 2012 agreed that positive airway pressure was being generated. In this prospective study of 25 infants with bronchiolitis, they placed probes in the pharynx and noted that the pressure increased linearly with flows up to 6 liters per minute. In general, they saw just about a half centimeter of water increase in pressure for each 1 liter per minute increase in flow. Not surprisingly, infants with a closed mouth led to higher pressures. 
And then there's an article from Malisi in 2013 from Intensive Care Medicine. They conducted a prospective study of 21 infants admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit with the diagnosis of bronchiolitis. They again measured pharyngeal pressures, and they used different flows, 1, 4, 6, and 7 liters per minute. In general, they found that flow of greater than 2 liters per kilo per minute was associated with 4 centimeters of water, pressure, and improved respiratory effort. If you gave a flow greater than 6 liters per minute, then you would generate sufficient positive pressure throughout the respiratory cycle. So what does this all mean? Well, it essentially tells us that you should set your initial pressure to a high enough flow to improve the patient's ventilatory effort. For babies that are older than two to three months of age, that means you're probably gonna wanna start anywhere between six to 10 liters per minute and certainly higher for larger patients. High flow is very easy to titrate and so you can start high and back down and that's more advantageous than starting low and advancing quickly. All right, so it's clear that you're getting some measure of positive pressure. And perhaps this positive pressure can help stent open or reopen collapsed alveoli. So there are studies that looked at this issue in terms of what happens to bronchiolytics. The first is from McKiernan in 2010 from the journal Pediatrics. They did a retrospective review of infants in the PICU with bronchiolitis. Before the availability of high-flow nasal cannula, 23% of these patients were intubated. After, 9% were intubated. They did control for age, weight, and RSV positive status. Overall, high flow resulted in decreased respiratory rate and decreased ICU length of stay. Though there were fewer patients intubated after the arrival of high-flow nasal cannula, this is not necessarily definitive data to support the claim that high-flow nasal cannula was responsible for independently reducing the risk of intubation. Schibler, from the Intensive Care Medicine Journal in 2011, conducted a retrospective review of 298 under two-year-old patients admitted to the ICU. 36, or 12% of those patients needed invasive ventilation. They looked at the subset with bronchiolitis, just over half, only 4% of those patients needed invasive ventilation. High flow did become available during the course of this retrospective study. The rate of intubation was 37% at the start and 7% at the end. Though again, more patients got high flow nasal cannula during the duration of the study, there was no statistically significant proof that it reduced intubation risk independently. The third study that fits into this theme is from Kelly in 2013 from Pediatric Emergency Care. Another retrospective review, this time of just under 500 patients under the age of two, all receiving high-flow nasal cannula within 24 hours of ED triage. They noted the following proportion of diagnoses. 46% with bronchiolitis, 28% with pneumonia, 8% with asthma, and you can do the math to meet the other percentage. Overall, intubation was required in only 8% of all patients. The risk for intubation was greater in all patients if the PCO2 was greater than 50, that had an odds ratio of 2.5, if the initial venous pH was less than 7.3, an odds ratio of also 2.5. In contrast, having bronchiolitis as opposed to one of the other diagnoses appeared to be protective. The odds ratio was 0.4. So can we conclude that high-flow nasal cannula administration reduces the risk of intubation and bronchiolitis? Not so fast. 
First of all, the rate of intubation and bronchiolitis seems to be declining overall. Second, though high flow does seem to improve some physiologic parameters, like respiratory rate or SATs, and generates, admittedly a difficult-to-measure amount of distending airway pressure, there is no statistically significant proof as of yet that it prevents intubation. Furthermore, it's interesting to note that the FDA in the United States has approved it for the delivery of heated humidified air, but not for the delivery of positive pressure. So essentially, if you're using it to provide positive pressure, you're doing so in an off-label fashion. Imagine I just did air quotes right there. Nevertheless, it's, it's mostly safe. There are case reports, though, of air leak syndrome, or barotrauma. One came from Hedge in Pediatrics in 2013. They shared a case series of three patients that all had high flow for various reasons and had barotrauma which resulted in significant morbidity or, in one case, mortality. Still, most patients on high flow do fine. But you should continually reassess patients and get follow-up blood gases if applicable. All right, let's wrap things up here. So high flow nasal cannula allows you to give high FiO2 with lower flows, and it generates a CPAP-like distending pressure that may be useful in bronchiolitis or other conditions where your alveoli are continually threatening to collapse. You should use it in a patient with good respiratory drive that needs assistance with ventilation. I believe a common scenario would be the sick bronchiolytic that comes in, but improves when you hold mask CPAP. In that case, you can trial them on high flow, and as long as they don't get worse, maintain that as you admit them to the hospital. You can think of its use to be analogous to BiPAP or CPAP. Use the low flow setup for the tiniest of babies, as it can only go up to 8 liters, and the high flow, high flow setup, yes, I recognize the redundancy from the Committee on Redundancy Committee, setup for bigger children and adults. Start high. For an older child, you could start at 10 to 20 liters per minute and adjust both the rate and the FiO2 to achieve SATs greater than 94%, better respiratory effort, and patient comfort. You can certainly use it in situations where you're worried that the baby might need intubation, but don't use it in lieu of more definitive airway management in a patient with persistent apnea or cardiopulmonary compromise. Finally, though you may have had otherwise, again, it's important to remember the following point. There is no statistically significant proof that high-flow nasal cannula administration prevents intubation and bronchiolitis. For that, we're going to need a randomized control trial looking only at patients with bronchiolitis, comparing those that got high-flow with those that did not. Well, thank you for listening to another edition of PEM Currents. As always, we welcome your feedback. Check out more linked educational content on the PEM blog at pemblog.com. This has been Brad Sobolewski, wishing you all a happy bronchiolitis season filled with wheezing and joy.